It's September 12, 2008, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. Ah, the unmistakable magic of Mozart, the overture to the marriage of Figaro. It's a sparkling introduction to one of the greatest of all operas. And it's a perfect opening to the fall music season here at the National Arts Centre. Opera Lyra Ottawa's production of The Marriage of Figaro, with James Westman as Count Almaviva, Caitlin Lynch as the Countess, Maria Teresa Magisano as Susanna, and Robert Gerlach as the barber Figaro. The production is directed by Glynis Lation, and the National Arts Centre Orchestra will be conducted by Christoph Campestrini. I should also mention that, in keeping with its tradition of offering training and performance opportunities for gifted younger singers, a special matinee performance featuring a silver cast of the next generation of opera stars will be offered as well. I invited Maestro Christoph Campestrini, Opera Lyra's artistic director Tyrone Patterson, and Silvercast mezzo-soprano Marion Newman to talk about the marriage of Figaro. Our conversation soon led to a discussion of the social tensions that are so central to this opera. We're here in the basement of the National Arts Centre where we record NACOcast's broadcasts, and I have with me three charming guests, Marion Newman, the mezzo-soprano who plays in the Silvercast, Carol Bino. We have Ty Patterson. Ty is the Artistic Director of Opera Lyra Ottawa. And also with us is our guest conductor for this production of Marriage of Figaro from Vienna, Christoph Campestrini. Welcome to all of you. Hello. Thank Thanks you very much. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to throw out a big challenge to you right to start. And this is going to involve some group thinking here. I want us to come up in about two minutes with a synopsis of this incredibly complicated opera. Well, I'm going to start with you, Christoph. Okay. What happens? Let's start with Lenot, meaning wedding, uh, which is the key, really, uh, element in the story. Susanna and Figaro um, are working at the castle of the Count, and they want to get married. Um, The problem is that at the time, there used to be a feudal right of the nobleman to have the first night with his female servants. So the idea is that, of course, Figaro wants to abolish with that, and the entire opera is a drive on his part to get the permission to marry Susanna. There is another group of people that are opposed to this. Uh, this is, for instance, Marcellina. Uh, she is uh, a former uh, tutor, so to speak, of the Countess. Uh, then there is the uh, Basilio, uh, the voice teacher. And there is 
Dr. Bartolo, uh, a lawyer. And the three of them are on the side of the Count, trying to prevent the wedding, wedding ceremony from happening. Then there is also a, a strong uh, connection between the Countess and her servant, Susanna. The problem for the Countess is that their marriage with the Count has become estranged. The Count obviously, obviously doesn't care for her uh, as much anymore. He's going heavily uh, after Susanna, who of course is outraged by this. After all, she's about to mar uh, marry Figaro. So at the, at the last character that we haven't mentioned yet is Cherubino a 17-year-old boy being sung by a woman who is of noble descent and, so to speak, uh, just spends a few weeks in, in the castle of his uncle, uh, the Count. He is very much after every single woman he can actually see and, and encounter, and he has written uh, Canzonetta, a song for the Countess. Well, this develops and develops, and there are many subplots that uh, you said two minutes <laughs> will certainly not be possible to mention in, in the entirety. Uh, what happens is that uh, at the very end, uh, in order to make the Count uh, accept the, the wedding, um, Susanna uh, pretends that she accepts uh, his invitation to a rendezvous in, in, in the garden and instead of her, she sends the Countess uh, to dress up as Susanna and uh, at this moment when uh, the, the Count is so humiliated when he finds out that uh, actually it is his wife that he finds there. He then has to beg her for forgiveness. And this is the most touching scene. And it's a, a crucial moment because the Countess has to fall on his knees uh, and beg his wife in front of all the servants for forgiveness. And that is the turning point. And that leads to the final outcome that the wedding can happen and everybody goes to have a great wedding party. And a lot of little complications in, in, many in this long yes. story and these many recitatives. And, of course, Marion, you play this, uh, this incredibly hormonally charged young man, Carabino. Is this your first, uh, first bite at the role? No, actually. I had a chance to perform it last year at a program in Sulmona, Italy, um, called Cozy, which is run out of Toronto, actually. So we had a chance to act, stage it completely with costumes in a beautiful old Italian theater that was created for opera. No, I'm going to ask you two questions about Carabino. First of all, how on earth do you rev yourself up to get into the role of a teenage boy who's just completely smitten with women in general? And secondly, how has Mozart's writing for the voice in Carabino helped you achieve that? Um, how to get revved up? I think anyone who is human and who admires other people um, at any level would know how it is to feel excited in someone's presence. And if you've fallen in love before and felt the sort of how you just can't think of anything to say, your palms are sweaty, you're just, you, you suddenly feel completely awkward, like all you need to do is draw on any experience. And I've had many of those. <laughs> <laughs> I've also spent a lot of time watching um, men 
and how they walk and how they relate to other people. And I don't mean in a lewd way, <laughs> but just how, how they relate to other people um, just to figure out how not to look like a woman as much in, in playing a boy. And uh, it's actually, and also being a woman who has been flirted with before <laughs> a couple of times, um, I know what sort of what, what sort of pickup lines men have, how they look at you, where they look at you, you know, um, how they size you up, and it's absolutely freeing and so much fun to be on the other side of that, playing with with other women. But is Carabino <laughs> sophisticated enough to be operating at that level? I don't think he's really figured all of that out yet but he's trying out anything he's ever seen I would say and I think his heart patters for anything in a skirt really um, I don't think he's necessarily looking at everyone's face at this point he's just really excited by anything female that now, walks by that's one of the challenges for um, a female to play the role of, of, a, of a boy in this case but of a, of a male and just to, to find the way to stand on stage, the stance mm -hmm. is quite different from male to female and to make that adjustment. And I remember when I was conducting a, an opera called uh, Le Portrait de Manon. It's just a very small little opera. And um, it, uh, well, it was a one-act opera. And the uh, girl who was playing a boy in that role had to be the one initiating a kiss, and she had... It just had no way how to hold the how to hold the girl properly because she was always used to being in the other position, you know. And so uh, that that was part part of the fun for me is I got to show her how to do that properly. So to, yeah. to me, the, the, mo the most challenging uh, scene actually for Carabino to play is uh, when Carabino, uh, well, the woman who plays the boy Carabino, is being dressed up as a woman again and has to play a woman from the point of view of a boy yes. in order to give some flowers to the countess. I mean, this is turning things around three times. And that's quite... Yeah, it is very awkward <laughs> to be a woman dressed as a... or playing a boy dressed as a woman and trying to walk <laughs> as a boy would think a woman walked. That is one of the biggest challenges, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> so, Marion, back to my question about how Mozart, and the, his genius, of course, is to find the essential humanity within all of these characters. This first great aria uh, for Carabino and also Pew, the English translation. Now, how's this for a breathless teenager? I don't know what I am anymore or what I'm doing. I'm on fire. Now I'm freezing. Every woman makes me change color. Every woman makes my heart flutter. Simply at the name of love, of delight, I'm upset, my heart beats faster, I find, and so forth. Yes. Tell, tell me about the music and how, what is it in the, in the rhythms, in the orchestration, in the tonality, in the range that allows Mozart to give life to this character? Um, I think that in the accompaniment, uh, the sort of the heartbeat is almost left out and it's like there are these little flutters da 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 and it's like you're forgetting to breathe yeah. it's written right in there that that flutter i think anyone hearing that uh, it, it it hits you that way um and it already makes you feel not quite grounded and um and it's just skittering quickly through these lines and having all these different thoughts. And so if the teenage Carabino doesn't really know what to do with his love and his, his sexuality, what does the mezzo do in terms of coming to this aria and trying to balance all the years of training to sing beautifully and yet 
to sing with anxiety and breathlessness. How, how do you balance that? It's really important. I mean, the staging process allows you time to figure out how to find your groundedness and still look agitated. Um, and hopefully your technique is in good enough shape to, to bring a little bit of breath in here and there, but so that the sound can still carry over the orchestra and into the audience. If I may add just a little uh, point to that, the big challenge in the interpretation of that aria is to um, get this breathlessness across and yet not getting faster and faster. Because with the orchestra, the ensemble is quite tight. There are a lot of fermatas. These are points where the line drops and halts for a moment. And if we rush into these things, the ensemble and the entire spirit is in great um, danger. So what, what I always say to Carabinos is um, try to project the breathlessness, but within a steady tempo. And that will work for both ends. And the, the later aria, the most beautiful yeah. aria, Voike Sapete, What's going on with Carabino at that point? Carabino has written a song for the Countess, um, given it to Susanna in hopes that she would pass it on because he's a little bit too shy to do that himself. And in this scene, she says, why don't you present it? You are the author. And so he sings a song about love, basically the uh, he wants to sing to um, the Countess. And here, here's his big chance. thing in the second aria is that um, in, in the script it says uh, Susanna accompanies him uh, on the guitar and Mozart put that guitar in, in the entire orchestra it's a huge string orchestra being plucked in pizzicato and cre creating the illusion of an enormous guitar uh, upon which then Carabino presents the melody that he came up with for the Countess right. yeah. and in that he's saying you women who know what love is tell me what it is that I feel in my heart and the longing in the music is so touching and poignant, isn't it? Christoph, let's return again to the general idea of the social tensions that are being investigated here. Now, I, I think it would be, perhaps you disagree, but I think it would be a mistake to say that Mozart really was political in, in the sense of being making a political statement about the, uh, the slow death of the, the feudal right and the aristocracy. Would you agree that really what, what, this, what this is about is, is essentially the human relationships? Well, there are these uh, two important levels of the opera. I think we have, when we talk about this, look at the time uh, and the place. The 18th century in, in Vienna, but not just in Vienna, was uh, uh, very excited with these new plays that Beaumarchais had come up with. Uh, it, to the extent that uh, uh, rulers all over Europe were afraid of the agitation that came from this. 
Uh, this is the only opera that Mozart ever wrote without uh, having a commission for it. So he must have had a strong urge to do so. Um, on the other hand, it was very difficult for him to get the piece through the censorship. So the only uh, means by which that could have been achieved was that uh, Taponte, the uh, librettist, at the time had to promise Joseph II, the ruler, that all the dangerous parts of the Beaumarchais original uh, were to be removed. For instance, in the fifth act of the Beaumarchais, there is a very strong soliloquy uh, of Figaro in which he says uh, he uh, attacks, verbally attacks uh, the Count by saying, what do you think uh, that you are any better just because of your noble birth? Don't you have any better merits to show in, in comparison with some other people? And of course, this was quite uh, hot stuff for the time. This, for this reason, for instance, this soliloquy and uh, other scenes had to be uh, uh, abolished. Uh, so there is this political side. However, Mozart being the genius uh, that he was, uh, he brings the opera to what you rightly call a humane level that surpasses by far any of the political uh, lines and threads in, in, in this play. Uh, it's eternal arched type kind of relations that we get to meet in this opera. Uh, the wife that feels betrayed, um, the husband that doesn't know how to uh, find a combination between his uh, thirst for control for power and uh, on the other hand uh, doesn't find a chance to admit his vulner vulnerability uh, we find Carabinius we just talked about the the archetype of, of the unsettled uh, teenage boy uh, and the one thing uh, talking about the human level that I find so fascinating in this work is that it is really an opera of women uh, the men are the ones who pretend to be strong and they fight and they clash and all these things. But the true advancement of the story really happens through the women. Uh, the countess in her way knows how to make uh, her husband turn around. Uh, and Susanna on the other hand knows how, how to work on Figaro to, to get the, uh, the wedding actually in, in place. And um, it, it is to me amazing to look at the arias uh, in particular of, of the countess um, for instance, Porgy d'Amour, the opening of the second act. Uh, it is a major um, key, and most of the arias are in major keys. Uh, however, it is about the, about the most lonelysome, sad, and melancholic kind of major that you can imagine. Here we really meet uh, a woman who is quite frankly in, in despair in, of, about her life. Uh, the second big aria, uh, Dove Sono, uh, goes even a step, a step further because there she explains why she feels like this. And then she looks back at the happier times when uh, she still had a 
functioning marriage basically with uh, the count and the depths of uh, human uh, psyche that Mozart, Mozart uh, explores are just um, breathtaking. On the other hand, Susanna, who is arguably the center of the opera, mm. and her her confidence and her uh, her steadfast desire just to get what she wants, which is to have to have the marriage, yes, and to be with with Figaro. Her arias have a kind of a confidence to them, don't they? Yes, uh, in a very different way from from the Countess, though. Uh, her first aria, uh, actually, this is a phenomenon in, in the history of opera, is not an aria but uh, a terzet, uh, because even though Susanne is only singing, it's uh, the dressing, uh, the dress changing scene with um, Susanna and Carabino, and uh, not only does the, the, the change uh, changing of the dress go uh, on on stage, but Mozart wrote all these things. There's uh, two um, in Invisible characters appearing in, in the way he put the, the strings and the winds together. Um, and so there's a very special uh, quality, uh, you're right uh, in pointing out uh, in, in Susanna, also something in the second aria because she uh, knows that uh, Figaro is hiding right behind her and she's pretending to invite the Count for a rendezvous. Uh, uh, meeting in the garden and she does this only with this one purpose of making him upset but in a very cunning well-meaning way. Well are any of Susanna's arias really just her by herself? Hmm. Not good really question. are they? Yes, very good. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the whole point about Susanna as a character is that her her human skill is her ability Amazing, yeah. to work with people. And to interact with And people. to interact yes. and therefore Mozart has always written her in, in some context in all the arias as not, not by herself. That is true, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a fascinating thing. Um, uh, Ty Patterson, I want to talk a, talk a little bit about um, Glynis Lation, who is the um, the stage director for this production of Opera Lyra's Marriage of Figaro, uh, how would you describe um, the interaction that you've had with her and that she's had with the singers in attempting to flesh out these characters that we're talking about? Well, I think what she brings to it is 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 a fresh approach. On the and, and on the one hand, is this is the first time she's she staged the opera, so she has been able to uh, bring some some of her uh, new ideas rather than bringing some old baggage along with her that she's done somewhere else with another character or with, or with another singer who is singing the same character but these are all new ideas and um, I think uh, the, the, the singers that we have um, have all been very receptive to uh, new ideas and uh, some of them have sung the roles many times like uh, the person that's singing our Figaro for example I think he's sung the role many, many times all over the world and uh, who's quite wonderful, by the way. Uh, but he's been very open to, to the ideas that Glennis has brought uh, brought forward. And well, uh, Ty, are the, are the ideas that she's bringing forth about the essential quality of the characters? Yeah, definitely. It's important, I think, to, to bring out, as you were speaking earlier, um, the differences in all the characters and how to play uh, there are different levels on the on the social playing field, as it were, and how, how do you go about how do you go about making that more obvious?
is for the audience because as we discovered it's an extremely complex uh, uh, you know story and not uh, not all of the audience members will necessarily be uh, particularly familiar with all of the small details so it's important for the stage director to be able to bring that out well, and what I've uh, actually too uh, before I forget what I found to be a really great um, experience and was the watching uh, the maestro work with Glynis uh, because uh, Christoph had a lot to say about uh, the interpretation of the text and uh, in the in the recitative where it's just getting that story out there quickly and uh, I, you know uh, and so I think that was a huge uh, a huge help to Glynis to have uh, you know all of these uh, really well, well, insights. Let's, if we could just, her. I'd like to get back to the concept of the character of the Count himself, right. and how he is realized in this production because it's certainly possible to portray him as a completely unsympathetic mm. chauvinist. Yeah. Yes. And yet my reading of, of his character is there's a lot of tension, that there's a lot of issues that he's working through. Do you look for some sympathy for the Count in a production? I think it would be absolutely misleading to see just one dimension in the Count and it would be so easy to see him as, as a per person only. After all, uh, in order to believe what the Countess is saying uh, in her big aria about the wonderful times that she's had with him, there must have been something in him that uh, made for her attraction uh, to him. And uh, I've talked uh, quite a bit actually uh, about this subject with uh, our wonderful Count James Westman. Uh, and we've come to the agreement that there are a few key spots in the opera where he must be able to show his uh, f f uh, fragile side, the yes. vulnerable side. For instance, there's a magical moment um, in the second act uh, where he says, uh, O torto e mi pento. Uh, I, I was wrong uh, when he thinks he, uh, he has uh, accused her uh, without any justification and, and I'm repenting. And, and this is kind of a foreshadowing of the big forgiveness scene at, at, at the very end. And Mozart uh, suddenly drops to pianissimo there uh, and he writes a Neapolitan chord in G flat major, which is uh, a very unusual chord uh, in, in his time. And uh, so in, this is a technical term, but the effect of this is the audience goes, oh, what's going on? Some some special moment, and uh, we we said uh, to, James and I together that we want to make that point really uh, a very intimate uh, uh, point in in the development where he softens his voice. I will take down the orchestra considerably, and uh, it will be understood that the character has many more dimensions mentions than just being uh, mean all the time. The question that I find fascinating, and, and I'm sure this is part of the discussion that you've had with James Westman and with Glynis Lation, do you think that the Count is really actually interested in Susanna, or is he just basically taking advantage of his feudal right and she's just a peasant girl? And and if if he is interested in her, how do you bring out that, that, that deep, Pers personal grain of, of you know true affection in in the, their interaction well with him a lot of the things are a, a power game I mean that we simply have to see uh, there are many dimensions in him but power is what he's most interested in he is the head of the castle and he thinks that everything that goes on in this castle should be under his control including uh, what goes on with Susanna. Um, and it is only under understandable that then she reacts by f fighting uh, a way to 
to plot something against this. Um, there are many different um, uh, sides in him. Uh, on the one hand, uh, yes, he's obviously interested in Susanna because she's an attractive uh, young woman. Um, on the other hand, uh, there is something in his R in the third act that he says uh, is even more um, problematic for him. He says that there, the fact that a servant of his should be more happy than him, that he cannot take. Mm -hmm. uh, so we get uh, the, the sense of, of somebody's pride really being hurt there. And that becomes then the impetus uh, of him to go against the wedding. So many, many issues here. Yes. Marianne, mm -hmm. at the end of Act Four, there is this moment for the whole cast, this marvelous sweet music in G major that wherein all conflicts have been resolved and there's a, some sort of mutual understanding of the shared humanity of all their characters. Tell me what it's like to be on stage and sing those fabulous, what are they, 32 bars? Yeah. Like, it's just one of the great moments in music. It's a really touching part. I mean, as an audience member, it's where you're going to cry if you're going to. Mm -hmm. And as one of the people singing it, it is also and it's a struggle to make sure that you maintain your calm because you are presenting something. But it's just so beautiful. It, the way it's written, the way it's usually staged, it washes over you. You really do feel that content um, with life and how lucky we all are. Also in, in terms of the humane quality of the play that you mentioned before, this is the key moment really because after all the struggling and all the intrigues of different people against each other, Mozart all brings us down and says, but there is a chance for us to be happy with each other. And, and he does this in a sincerity, um, you know, there is the illusion that men and women can be happy together after all. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's uh, in a very touching way that he writes that. It's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful moment. Let's move uh, our discussion here to the whole concept, uh, Ty, of Opera Lyra's Silver Cast. Would you tell us what this is and the, your purposes? Our training program with Opera Lyra Ottawa is continuing to grow over the years. This is the third year uh, that we've been able to present with the opening production of, of the season, uh, what we're calling a silver cast. And the, the silver cast performance itself is, um, has two parts or two purposes. One being to present uh, fully staged opera with costumes, uh, sets, orchestra for children in the audience. So, so the audience uh, is, is all school, school kids. And thus far, they've been extremely appreciative, and it's actually a lot of fun to, uh, to perform for them because they're, they're quite enthusiastic. 
even though it's at 11 o'clock in the morning, which is very difficult for the singers. Having done this and sitting in the pit with the orchestra, these student performances are an astounding experience because the kids are quiet and focused Uh and incredibly enthusiastic, Mm -hmm. and they stand and cheer at the end. Exactly. So I think it's wonderful that we can bring the art form to uh, young people. I won't go into a lot of discussion about what's happening in the, in the, in the school system, you know, in, in Ontario. But so much, uh, there, are, there are so many budget cuts that so there now, now very few schools have a really strong uh, train, music program that would introduce opera. And we create a, a fantastic study guide that goes along with it, actually. It's really, uh, I think, a, a very, a very wonderful study guide, and it's very detailed, and the teachers can choose to use it as a, as a basis for discussion in their in their classroom. The other part of what the Silvercast is all about is to create a performance opportunity for upcoming stars, the upcoming singers of tomorrow. And uh, we're very pleased to have people like Marianne uh, in our silver, uh, silver cast. And so, um, what happens is when they first when they first appear, they observe the rehearsals with the main stage cast. So they are basically uh, we have a music rehearsal when we start. So make sure that everybody knows the, knows the music and we're ready to start. And then they watch uh, and they they watch the staging process with the main cast and they learn their blocking uh, by observing and such. And then after about a week or so goes by, then we start having our own rehearsals uh, with with just those uh, those singers who are who are um, singing the main the main roles uh, in the silver cast and uh, there's some leeway for our stage director uh, who is Rob Rob Harriet we have another stage director for the silver cast and uh, and I'm conducting the silver cast and it's because we're it's we have to have different directors and conductors because it's so it's too busy for one person to do it all and um, so now, while we're preparing for the main stage at night this week uh, with all of the rehearsals with the orchestra and such, we're, during the day we're doing rehearsals, blocking rehearsals, staging rehearsals with the silver cast. And next week, once we're in performances with the main stage cast, then our silver cast is starting to do some run-throughs during the day and such. And we fit the... Uh, in between our main stage performances, which are Saturday, Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, we have a dress rehearsal on the Thursday and then the performance on the Friday. And uh, it's a little tricky, I have to say, for these young singers because, of course, they're, they're less experienced than the ones in the main stage cast, and yet they get far less rehearsal. It's a little bit of an oxymoron in that case. And uh, so it's rather stressful and tense for all of us and, uh, because we just have that one rehearsal to throw it all together and to sing on the big stage in the big theater. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it takes uh, Neil uh, stirs, uh, nerves of steel at times, but nevertheless, it's, uh, I think it's, it's really worth it. It's well, you know, sitting in the pit, as you well know, Ty, orchestral musicians who are the severest critics, <laughs> uh, we, we sit and we listen to these people, and I tell you, every year when this, the silver cast comes in to sing, people are blown away with just how great it is. But that doesn't seem to be that much of a surprise because I don't know what it is that we're feeding singers here in Canada. <laughs> but the, um, you know, through the various uh, professional training programs, there's just a wealth of talent that continues to, uh, to evolve. You're right about that, actually. There are a lot of really terrific Canadian singers, and uh, actually we're very uh, aware of that here. And as part of our mandate at Opera Lyra, um, we, we create opportunities for Canadian artists. Of course, we use, uh, we use artists uh, from outside of Canada as well. Uh, but f- 
the high we have a very high percentage of our roles we we consciously mm-hmm. fill with Canadian artists and we have some of the best singers in the world exactly. that are Canadians exactly well it's been wonderful to talk to the three of you I want to thank all three of you for coming in and once again what genius this is let's go out with a little bit of that beautiful beautiful final moment in Act 4 of The Marriage of Figaro of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart Patterson is celebrating his 10th season as Artistic Director of Opera Lyra, Ottawa. Mezzo-soprano Marion Newman began her career as a concert pianist and made her orchestral debut at age 16 with the Victoria Symphony, performing a Mozart piano concerto. Of course, Marion is now carving out a very successful, growing operatic career throughout Canada and Europe. Christoph Campestrini's conducting career has taken him to more than 80 orchestras on five continents, including engagements this season with the Detroit and Milwaukee symphonies and the Philadelphia Orchestra. Well, that's all for this edition of the NACOcast. Please join us next time for a discussion of Mozart and the four symphonies of Johannes Brahms. For Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa, this is Christopher Millard.